Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. If you have your Bibles and you want to uh, please go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 4. And by the way, this morning when I came in, I found this brand new, I mean, it looks like brand spanking new black Bible on one of the back chairs. And uh, I opened it up, I don't, not to see if there's any money or anything, but I opened it up to see if there was a name. There's no name, so if you brought a brand spanking new black Bible, really neat with a nice little zipper cover, um, it's sitting right on the back shelf there, uh, the sound booth. So uh, if it's yours, help yourself to it. Anyways, uh, so the title, and and like I said last week, I don't normally title messages, but uh, the title of this message is The Reluctant Deliverer Part 2. So we looked at Part 1 last week, and kind of to set the stage, I think I'm going to go ahead and read the first 10 verses just to give us, or excuse me, the first uh, nine verses just to kind of set the stage for where we're at uh, this morning. So here the Lord has called Moses... And uh, he, he's raised up Moses. You know, Moses was miraculously delivered from the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter and uh, raised in Egypt to be really the second, uh, he, he, was the nec- he would have been the next prince of Egypt, uh, the next Pharaoh, had he stayed in uh, Egypt. But uh, God was working in his heart and uh, he knew that he was a, a Hebrew and uh, knew about the plight of his Hebrew brothers and sisters that were they were being treated like slaves, or they were slaves, I should say, in Egypt. And, uh, and so 40 years, he's about 40 years old, and he thinks God's called me to deliver the children of Israel. So he goes and he, uh, he sees this Egyptian mistreating a, a fellow Hebrew, and so he kills the Egyptian and uh, and buries his body in the sand, thinks that's, you know, nobody knows about it, whatever. And the next day he sees two Hebrews, one Hebrew's mistreating another, and so he goes, hey, you guys are brothers, why are you doing that? And they said, well, who are you to judge us? Are you gonna kill us like you killed the Egyptians? And then he realized, man, jigs up, I gotta run. So he fled to Midian and uh, spent 40 years in the backside of a desert and then at the end of 40 years the Lord called him spoke to him out of a burning bush and we know that story if you've been to Sunday school if you read the Bible before you know about that and so the Lord God at that time he, oh, Moses is 80 years old at this point it's called him to go and be you know to speak to Pharaoh to, to let God's people go and so we're gonna an- look at that there in verse 1 of chapter 4 Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. I heard uh, a teacher, John Corson, say that uh, that was a hot rod in Moses' hand because it turned into a viper. And anyways, I kind of wanted to dodge mentioning that, but I couldn't help it. But. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Uh, like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. 
Then it will be, if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it out on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. And that's what we looked at last week, the first part. And we, we looked at the reluctance of Moses to be God's deliverer. So now we're picking it up here in verse 10. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And you have to go, really? Because in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says this in verse 22. He says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So he was educated in all the knowledge of Egypt. And it says he was mighty in words and deeds. But you know, that was 40 years prior to this. 40 years in the backside of the desert has humbled Moses, and it seems like he's lost his self-confidence, the self-confidence that he had when he was 40. Now, it's good that we're humble. It's good that we don't put a confidence in ourselves uh, as long as we don't stay in that condition because you see the Lord God wants to work through Moses just like he wants to work through us. So it's good to not put confidence in our own flesh, but we also need to put confidence in what God can do through us. And that's what Moses is supposed to learn here now. Now, for you and I, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul tells us that you and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given a ministry to reach out, to minister to those in this world. And we've been committed, or what's been committed to us is the word of reconciliation. In fact, he says that we're ambassadors for Christ. You know, an ambassador, they basically speak on behalf of their government, officially, basically. And so you and I, we've been given that ministry to be God's spokes, spokespeople to this world around us, to a lost and dying world. And maybe you, you know, you know that the Lord's called us as Christians to be witnesses in this world, but maybe think, well, you know what? Man, I'm not eloquent. I don't even, I, I don't think I could really sit down and just share the gospel. I, I don't know what I would say and stuff. Well, you know, it's not a matter of being eloquent. In fact, Paul, early on in his ministry, he tried to be eloquent. You recall in Acts when he visited Athens, Greece, and he went to the Areopagus. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Whatever that place is called. Areopagus, I think is what it's called. And uh, it says in Acts 17, verse 21, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So the people, they gathered in this, in this arena here to, to just, they wanted to hear someone. And so if you were an eloquent speaker, man, they wanted to hear what you had to say, especially if it was new. And so Paul comes in here with the gospel, right? And uh, he ended up delivering a very eloquent speech. You can read it in Acts chapter 17. He quoted their prophets. Uh, he tied it back. I mean, it was like a five-point message. I mean, it was, he just, it was smooth. It was polished. Uh, but the thing is, he never mentioned Christ by name there in that message. He never mentioned Christ by name. And the result of that message, the Bible says only many, excuse me, not many believed, only a few. So it wasn't really that he had to be eloquent. In fact, after that, after that experience in Athens, the next stop was Corinth. 
And in his letter to the Corinthians, now the Corinthians, you know, they weren't that far from Athens and, and they were kind of like the Athenians in, in, in a lot of respects because when Moses, or excuse me, when, when Paul showed up there, they weren't that impressed with him. Uh, here's this guy, you know, this Jewish man that uh, he didn't have much appearance. He didn't, he didn't have a good, really, really good voice and he wasn't very eloquent. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it describes it. It says, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So he looked at this guy and they're like, man, there's nothing to this guy. But you see, Paul learned a lesson when he was in Athens. And he describes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, or of wisdom declaring to you the gospel, uh, the testimony of God, excuse me. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the way Paul went to Corinth. I'm just going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you look in the book of Acts, man, there were a lot of people that came to faith in Corinth. A lot of people. Many people put their trust in Christ there. So here's Moses. After 40 years in the desert, and who's he got to talk to? Well, you know, he's out. He, you know, he's married. He's got his wife, Zipporah. And uh, he's got, a, by the time we get to this story, this chapter, he's got two sons. But, uh, you know, his, his father-in-law, Jethro, that's about the only people that he's around. Other than that, he's talking to sheep, you know, because he's out there tending sheep for his father-in-law. And so he hasn't been talking with a whole lot of people. So he's, you know, here God says, I want you to go and talk to Pharaoh and tell him to release my people. And Moses is not convinced that he's the man that God can use to deliver God's people out of bondage in Egypt. And so he says, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, whether he had a speech impediment or something, we, we don't really know. But here's God's response to Moses in verse 11. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. God's telling Moses, Moses, I already know what your weaknesses are. God already knows what your and my weaknesses are. And yet he still chooses to use us so that he's glorified in our weaknesses. Now, if I was God, I wouldn't, I'd, I'd send angels to proclaim the gospel, right? I mean, you have this fiery angel and, you know, I mean, they don't blow it. But man, I blow it. And uh, I, I get tongue twied, tongue twied. I get tongue just like I did now. You know, I'm not that eloquent. Um, but God chooses to use the weak things of the world. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. He says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. Doesn't mean that there's nobody wise of Christians. There's some very wise Christians that, that God has raised up, but there's not many wise. And there's not many mighty. Not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world 
to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know, when the Apostle Paul, he started his ministry, and you can, you can read it as you go through the book of Acts, at one point he gets to a city named Lystra, and at Lystra, they stone him, and they leave him for dead outside the city. And later on in his letter to the Galatians, in chapter 6, verse 17, he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what he's referring to, however, it could quite possibly be that, you know, I mean, if you get, you get big rocks thrown at you and uh, you're, they think you're dead, I mean, you've, you've had some damage, right? I mean, you, you've been, you've for sure got scars, but he might have even had, there's possible that his eyes could have got messed up. And uh, anyways, not much to look at because this guy's all battered and, and beaten and stuff. And, uh, and so here's this man, he comes to Corinth and he's just not much to look at. And, you know, Paul at one point receives a, a vision. He sees, uh, he sees heaven, basically. He, he says, I know a man that went up to heaven. Well, we, most of us think that it was him himself that's describing that. And uh, he says, you know, I, I could have got, got really proud about it. But he says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that, you know, he... He wanted this, he was given this thorn in the flesh. And a lot of people think it was this eyesight, this eye problem from possibly when he got stoned. Not like drug stone, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, anyways, uh, so anyways, he got humbled. And uh, he cried and he prayed out to the Lord, said, Lord, can you remove this for me? And he says he prayed three times. And the Lord's response to him says, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so as a result of that, Paul says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. So Paul understood that God works through weaknesses. God wants to work through your and my weaknesses as well. Now, there was another guy in the Old Testament that kind of felt the same way Moses did when he was called. His name was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. And he was similarly reluctant to be used by God as Moses was. In Jeremiah 1, verse 4, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah speaking, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. That's the Lord says, before, I, before you were even born, I knew who you were. I've chosen you to be a prophet. And Jeremiah responded and says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. God doesn't change, 
And he had the same message for Jeremiah that he had for Moses. Basically the messages, and it's the same message he has for you and I. I'm with you and I'll give you the words to speak. So Moses is hearing the Lord's response here, verse 13, but he said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. See, he's still not convinced. In fact, it's like, Lord, I'm not your man. Send someone else. Now, Moses here has crossed a threshold in this verse. He's gone from doubt in God's word to stubborn rebellion against God's word. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he also is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you what you shall do. So basically now there's a middleman, Aaron. God's going to speak to to Moses, Moses is gonna to speak to Aaron and Aaron's the one that's gonna to speak to Pharaoh. It says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses at this point, not because of his doubt, not because of his doubt, but his disobedience arising from his doubt. The big difference. What's fascinating to me is here, God knew already what Moses' response, and he's already working in the heart of Aaron, his brother, back in Egypt to come out to meet Moses and Midian. Verse 16, so he shall be your spokesman to the, to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God, and you shall take his, this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. What's, what's taking place here? I think this is a very important point here. This is an incident of God's permissive will versus his perfect will. What was God's perfect will? God's perfect will was that Moses would go and speak to Pharaoh. What's God's permissive will? God's permissive will is God allowing Aaron to be Moses' spokesman because of Moses' stubbornness. But that wasn't God's perfect will. But he permitted that. You know, you and I, we serve a gracious God. I'm so thankful. I love this verse, Psalm 103, verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. God knows what we're made of. He knows our weaknesses. God's will is still going to be accomplished, but there's going to be a price for Moses to pay for not submitting to God's perfect will. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. There's another person in the Old Testament there's another example of God's perfect will versus his permissive will, and that was in the life of a king of Judah by the name of Hezekiah. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 20. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read a few verses to you. It says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So we don't know what this illness was, but for whatever, whatever was going on with Hezekiah, he was going to die. And so the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to tell him, uh, excuse me, the, yeah, Isaiah the prophet, to tell him, hey, get your house in order. Get your things in order because you're going to die. 
It says, then he turned his face towards the wall. This is Hezekiah. And prayed to the Lord saying, remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So God basically said, okay, okay, I'll let you live another 15 years. Well, what happened? What happened during that time? We can read about it in 2 Chronicles 32. It describes the same incident, but it gives us a little more background. It says, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But listen to this. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. He got prideful in those last 15 years. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So he lived another 15 years. Then he died. And in 2 Chronicles 33, it tells us Manasseh, his son, says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. So if you, if, you, if you do the math, okay, the Lord tells Hezekiah, Lord, I'm gonna kill you, or you're gonna die, I should say, I'm not gonna kill you, you're gonna die. And Hezekiah cries out, says, Lord, you know, he's praying and stuff, and so the Lord says, okay, I'll add 15 years to your life. Well, three years into those 15 years, he has a baby boy by the name of Manasseh. 12 years later, when Hezekiah does die, Manasseh, as a 12-year-old, becomes the king of Judah now. Listen to the description of Manasseh, though. It's in 2 Chronicles 33. It says, Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all... Uh, excuse me, and he, and he built altars for, uh, oh, I got a little mixed up. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. In other words, he sacrificed his, 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 his sons. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol with which he made, in the house of God, which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land uh, which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do that all, I, all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinance by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Now, if you follow the story of Manasseh, he will end up repenting for his sins before he dies. But if you look back at what his, he's already killed his own sons. He's already seduced Judah, the nation, into abominable idolatry, and his actions have brought or will bring judgment on Judah. See, there was a price to pay for submitting to God's permissive will rather than obeying God's, or submitting, you know, he could have submitted to God's perfect will, but instead, God allowed him to live another 15 years. That was his permissive will, and there was a price to pay for it. For Moses, God's permissive will is going to result in Aaron being Moses' spokesman. But you know, that's not going to turn out all that good either. Aaron's going to prove to be a thorn in Moses' side. Moses is going to go up on the mountain. We'll, we'll study that in a few more weeks. He's going to go up on the mountain and receive the Ten Commandments. During that time, Aaron's going to make a golden calf for the children of Israel to worship because Moses has been up there for 40 days. We don't know what happened to him. Later on, Moses' older sister, along with Aaron, they're going to rebel against Moses' leadership. So there's, there's, there's a price to pay for not submitting to God's perfect will. For you and I, submitting to God's perfect will for our lives can avoid so many headaches down the road. Well, how do I know if I'm settling for anything other than God's perfect will. I mean, don't, don't you want to know that? I, I, I don't want to settle for his permissive will. I want, I want to do exactly what God wants me to do. How, how do I know when, when, I'm, when I'm not doing that? Listen, anytime you've sensed the Lord telling you something to do and you know that that's what the Lord wants you to do or maybe something the Lord doesn't want you to do and it seems a little too difficult to obey and instead of trusting him in obedience, you say, but Lord, can I just do that? Or can I, can I just, you know, Lord, can I just do a little there? You know, we, we compromise. Oh, we have good intentions. We want to obey the Lord, but it's so difficult to obey him in full obedience. And so we say, Lord, can we do that? And, and God's a gracious God, like I said before. Well, if that's the case, then you know you're settling for God's permissive will and not his perfect will. So, at this point, it appears that Moses has basically ran out of excuses. And now it sounds like, finally, verse 18, he's going to obey the Lord. But he's already compromised a little bit. Verse 18, So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now you've got you to picture this, okay? Here's Moses, he's 80 years old, and he's going to his father-in-law asking permission to leave, to go like start his own life basically back in Egypt. And uh, you might go, wow, that's kind of bizarre. But you know, I think it's a good thing. I think we see some really good characteristics in Moses. Paul wrote this in Romans 13, verse 7, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And even though Moses is 80 years old, he wants to honor his father-in-law. When, when I was dating my wife, Teresa, 
And she had been out of the house since I think she was 13 years old. She'd been living on her own and living in foster homes. So she wasn't under the, the authority of her, of her mother and her mother's boyfriend. But when I proposed to Teresa, I decided, you know, I'm going to go talk to her mother. So I went to the house and I, and, I, and, and I said, hey, can I have permission to marry your daughter? And it kind of like, she's like, wow, <laughs> you know? Now, if she had said no, I would have done it anyways. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know what? It was kind of interesting because it had an impact not only on her, but on her mother's boyfriend. He was really impressed which kind of helped because it got me in good in the family anyways. But, but, uh, but, you know, that, but sometimes it's just the right thing to do. And so Moses here, he's doing the right thing. He's asking his father-in-law's permission. On the other hand of that, think about this. I mean, they're out in the desert, right? I, you know, if you go around Rochester right now, there's all these work wanted. I mean, I don't know how anybody could not have a job here in Minnesota or in Rochester. There's help wanted signs everywhere. Um, there's so much work not enough people, and you can think in the desert, how many people are there available to fill in for Moses? And so Moses, you know, I think he's, I think he's doing the right thing. He's, he's, he's making sure that Jethro's okay with him leaving. Now, he probably would have left also, whether or not Jethro had said yes or no. I'm guessing, we don't know. But uh, who else is gonna fulfill Moses' position when he, when he leaves that? Um, but it seems, because Jethro gives him his blessing, that God's prepared Jethro's heart for Moses to leave as well. And I'm sure that's another confirmation for Moses. Hey, God's in this because he's made a way for me to leave Jethro. Verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. You know, you and I as Christians, sometimes we have critics. We have people that are naysayers in our lives or those that would seek to thwart the work of God in our lives and you know sometimes we can put so much energy expend so much energy into trying to defend ourselves or to fight back or to make sure that you know uh, I'm, I'm painted in a good light or whatever and I think sometimes we just need to persevere just stand back and uh, outlive them outlive our critics and uh, so you know, this is what happens with Moses those men the Egyptians, probably the certain Pharaoh and others that wanted to kill him, they've all gone. They're dead now. Verse 20. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. So here Moses, he's finally taking steps of obedience. He's heading back to Egypt. And he no longer has the shepherd's staff in his hand. He's got the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord here is preparing Moses for Pharaoh's response. It's not going to be smooth sailing necessarily. He says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Do you have a hard time hearing that? God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Does that mean that Pharaoh was an unwitting pawn in God's hands? It's like he had no choice. God was just going to harden his heart. You know, it's interesting, and we'll get into it when we get through the, the different plagues in Egypt. But half the time 
And you can do that, you can do your own Bible study, but half the time we're told after something occurs that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But also half the time we find out it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, what God does in a person's life, if they continue to reject him, they continue to, to, uh, to say no to, his, to the Spirit's calling and speaking to them, every time you do that, your heart gets a little bit harder, a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And at some point, your heart gets so hard, and God knows you're not going to repent. God knows you're not going to repent. And, and he, just, he just confirms it. He establishes it in your heart. None of us are unwitting pawns. We all have the free choice to choose to accept or reject the Lord God. And so Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, and the Lord's going to confirm it. The Lord's going to establish it. The Lord's going to harden his heart. That's always a scary thing when people share the gospel with an unbeliever. You know, I don't know, they have that, that statistic that, you know, so many, was it seven and a half times you hear the gospel before you actually respond or something like that? But, you know, every time someone shares a gospel with an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever here and God's, you know, somebody shared the gospel with you and the Holy Spirit's spoken to you, every time you say no, your heart gets just a little bit harder, a little bit harder, a little bit harder. It's a scary thing. Well, Moses is on his way to Egypt finally. He's got Jethro's blessing. That, that's taken care of. His wife Zipporah and his two sons are with him. He has the rod of God in his hand. He knows a little bit of what to expect, what he's going to be up against in Pharaoh, uh, with Pharaoh. He knows what the end result's going to be, that Pharaoh will end up letting the children of Israel leave Egypt. So man, it seems like everything's in place now. He's on his way to Egypt until we get to verse 24. And this is one of the most bizarre passages, I think, in the Old Testament. Verse 24 of Exodus 4. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Let that sink in for a minute. He's finally obeying the Lord. You know, there's a little bit of compromise, but he's finally obeying the Lord. He's 80 years in the making. He, now he's on his way to finally do what God's told him to do. And the Lord's about ready to kill him as he's getting to Egypt. Why would he do that? Well, you know what? It's interesting. His wife, Zipporah, who's a Midianite, she knows what the problem is. And she literally takes matters into her own hands to spare Moses' life. Look at verse 25. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, that's God, so he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. What's the issue here? That's such a bizarre passage. What's the issue here? Listen, Moses is being sent to represent a covenant God and he himself, though, has failed to uphold the covenant that God has established with the children of Israel in his own family. They had two sons. We know the first son was Gershom. Later on, we'll find out the second son was Eleazar. 
and only one son is being circumcised here. So it's quite possible that Gershom, the eldest son, was circumcised in the eighth day like God had required the children of Israel to do as a sign. Uh, uh, we'll get into that a little bit later too. Um, so it's possible that Gershom was circumcised already because they only circumcised one son. Zipporah only circumcised one son. We assume it might have been, a, uh, probably was Eleazar. Now, Zipporah, his wife, she's from Midian. And Midian was the name of one of Abraham's sons from Keturah, his second wife after Sarah died. And uh, so it's possible that maybe they weren't quite familiar with the circumcision, uh, the Midianites down through the years, whatever. She maybe, maybe when, uh, and I'm speculating here, but maybe when Gershom was circumcised on the eighth day that she was like, that's disgusting. You know, maybe she really protested and, and maybe Moses was like, man, I don't want to go through that again. So he just kind of, he didn't want to, he chose not to fight that battle. That's possible. It could also possibly be that Moses was just too busy that he neglected to circumcise Eleazar. Just too busy. I'm, I'm, I'm busy doing the things of the Lord. I'm, I'm getting ready to go to Egypt and all that. Um, whatever the reason was, because we don't know what the reason was, the fact of the matter is, his son hadn't been circumcised. And Zipporah knows why God is about to kill Moses because he hasn't done that. And so in disgust at Moses, because you can kind of sense it in the dialogue there, she does what Moses should have already done himself. And she circumcises Eliezer and says, you're a husband of blood. Now we're not told in this passage right here, but we'll find out later that she leaves him probably at this point with her two sons separate, go, go their separate ways. Listen, the rite of circumcision, what was the big deal about that? The rite of circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. And it symbolizes a cutting away of the flesh. Cutting away of the flesh. And you know, it's so sad when fathers in our culture, and we see it all around us, when fathers neglect the spiritual well-being of their households, and many times, and I've seen it over and over as a pastor, many times it's the mother who steps in like Zipporah and does the spiritual raising of the children because the father's absent. Either he, maybe he's there, but he's not, he's not participating. Or maybe he's not there. He's, not, he's absent, completely physically absent. It's sad when you see that. Because God has raised men to, to be that role in the family. Paul, it's such an important thing. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3 about people that want to become elders and pastors. He says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, and listen to this, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? It's such an important thing. Family matters, family does matter. Husbands and fathers, it's so important here that you and I, we don't neglect the spiritual lives of those that God's entrusted to us. 
Now maybe as, you're, as I'm going through this, you're thinking, man, I've already missed that opportunity. I've already, I've already blown it. Listen, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. What do you, what do you mean? I, I gotta go circumcise my son? No, no, no. Take the blade of the flesh. And I'm speaking symbolically here. The scriptures is the blade. You see, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So what does that mean? I, I got to start quoting scriptures at my teenage son that's in rebellion? Or, or you know, I got to start uh, uh, lopping off ears like Peter did? You know, I'm, gonna just, I'm gonna just going to slay him with the word, you know, and say all that. No, 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 not at all. In fact, probably in most cases, no, don't preach at them. But apply the word of God. All the decisions that you make. What's God's, what's God's will in this? In fact, that it's kind of a cliche, WWJD, what would Jesus do? But that's really what, what we're talking about. What, what would Jesus do? What's, what's, let him be our example. Let the word of God be the basis for how the family functions. And I got a word of caution. Don't judge, okay? It's easy to do that, but don't judge. Don't browbeat your kids, your wife. Don't charge in their self-righteously, but be like what Peter describes. First Peter 5, he says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. We all have a sphere of influence around us. We're not to lord it over them, but we're to set the example of godliness, being an example. Let Jesus Christ be your example. What, what, what example did he set for us? When he laid down his life for his sheep. He denied himself for him, for us. He didn't judge or condemn. He showed grace. He showed love. He showed compassion and, and he was patient. When you think of how many times the disciples, they just, they did stupid stuff and said stupid stuff and he was so patient with them. And he set the example by his own life. Again, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's how we're to apply the word of God in our lives as, as parents, as fathers, and as husbands. You might say, you know what, I'm not eloquent. Man, I, uh, or, or maybe, you know, I have no right to say anything because man, they, they see my flaws. Yeah, they do. They do. So what do you, how, do you, how do you deal with that? Just be honest. Be transparent. Your kids are a lot wiser than you think they are. They see through they see through us so much. Be honest and transparent. Admit your weakness and failings. Let God minister through the broken vessel that you are, because we are broken vessels, all of us. Let God minister to through us. That's a bigger testimony than trying to pretend like we've got it all together and we're going to tell our kids how to live their lives. Maybe you're here today and you're like me. My kids are all grown and out of the house. You think it's too late. And children are already gone. I no longer have any place or, or a place of influence over them. But you know what? Good news is there's still something you can do even today. Do what Job did. Listen to what Job did. 
It says he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, his children. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. What did Job do? He interceded for his children on a daily basis, his adult children that weren't in his home. And that's what you and I can do. It's too late. Your kids are already gone. You can intercede for them. Maybe you have uh, grandchildren. We've got grandchildren. Love. We just went on a vacation with four of them. I had a, had a blast. Seek to be a godly influence in your grandchildren, too. Or maybe you're an uncle. Maybe you don't even have children or grandchildren, but you're an uncle. You know, hey, be a godly example to those that are around you, that, that are looking up to you. Well, Moses here was severely and justifiably rebuked by his wife. The good news is the Lord's going to bring her back. They'll be reunited again later on. You see, the Lord didn't give up on Moses, flaws and all, just like he doesn't give up on you and I and our flaws. Verse 27, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. But God's still going to work through Moses. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be easy. We'll, we'll see that as we get in, even in next week. Things are going to be tough. It's going to be a challenge. God's given Moses a command to do, and it, it's, it's, it, there's going to be testing of his faith and, and testing of his perseverance and, and obedience. But here the children of Israel, they find out, you know, they, they've been in affliction. They've been crying out. And now the word has come back to them, hey, God's, God's heard you. He knows what you're going through, and he's visited you. And if you're going through a difficult time this morning, I just want to encourage you. God hears your prayers. He hears the cry of your heart, and he knows what you're going through this morning. And praise God, he's visited each one of us in his son, Jesus Christ. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to Lord in prayer. <coughs> Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the picture that we see in Moses. Lord, that you flaws and all, Lord, and, and you created him. And whether he had a speech impediment or not, Lord, you, you knew that. And uh, nothing was a surprise to you. And let, yet, Lord, you had a plan and a purpose for his life to glorify you. And Lord, I know that each person here that has a personal relationship with you, that, Lord God, you have a plan and a purpose for their lives. And it's not an issue of them being eloquent it's not an issue of them being flawless because we're all flawed, but it's an issue of us being surrendered and trusting you in full obedience. And Lord, in those areas in our lives where maybe we know what we need to do, we know what we're supposed to do, but it seems like it's such a difficult thing to do, Lord. May we, in faith and in obedience, obey your perfect will. And for those of us, Lord, that have settled for less than your perfect will, Lord, I thank you that you're a gracious God and you still choose to work through us, that you don't toss us aside, but Lord, you, 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 you use broken vessels.
And so I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, lastly, I just want to pray for everybody here. Lord, if there's anybody that does not have a personal relationship with you, Lord, if they're hearing your spirit speaking to their hearts this morning, that they may know that, Lord, you died on the cross for their sins. And that, Lord, you want to be their savior if they will just surrender their hearts to you this morning. That they, would, that they would believe that you died on the cross for them and that you rose again from the dead and that you want to come into their hearts to be their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray for anybody that does not have a relationship with you this morning that they would not harden their hearts once more, Lord God, but that their hearts would be tender and that they would, they would turn to you, Lord. And I thank you that your word says that if we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us, not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all the things, all the shame, all the guilt, that, Lord, you cleanse us from it. And you create in us, you create us as new creatures in your glory and in your image. And so, Lord, I just pray for each and every person here. I thank you for those that are here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.